I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. And by him, I, I, I got a, it's Byham. Like, a, you know, you could sell them, you could buy them. Is that the pronunciation, Doc? Yep. Uh, sell them and buy them. Buy them. <laughs> sell them <laughs> and correct. buy them. And actually, that's the part of your memoir we'll, we'll concentrate on today. Uh, 16 books plus a memoir coming out soon by the doc and uh fascinating every time i hear more and more i get more and more interested but I, i'm realizing what a what a fascinating family the biome family was uh doc how are you oh i'm doing okay i was just saying that i'm sleepy so i'm hoping to wake myself up <laughs> and, and <laughs> uh, since i'm going to be doing a reading i hope to do it in a lively way <laughs> Great, I'm sure. And, you know, it sounds a little, uh, you know, it, we were talking a little bit off mic, a little, and you suggested this too, but uh, Swiss Family Robinson-ish. And um, that is a uh, th that is a, a story that uh, that is a throwback. Um, and I don't know that you'd be seeing any of that because of modern uh, uh, business and modern populations. You're not going to hear many stories like this. This is a fascinating one. Well, this is a true story about the conditions in the middle of the country uh, right after World War II uh, and how primitive things really were uh, still in those days. Uh, there was one paved highway going through uh, east to west, not much going north to south at that time, and that was high, uh, U.S. Highway 62. And it was in northern Arkansas in the Ozarks, and TVA, which was the Roosevelt program to electrify the United States, had not arrived in the Ozarks as yet, and so the region was still the region was still uh, lighting their evenings with coal oil lamps, kerosene lamps, and the like. And uh, and so were we until my dad uh, set up a, um, a generator, uh, created a generator uh, out of an old Maytag washing machine motor and a set of car batteries. Wow. And we, we had electrical lights uh, when no one else did. But, of course, there uh, was no telephone service. So in order to uh, get a message across, we had to drive there and tell them <laughs> or else wow. or else depend on the uh, U.S. Post Office, which, of course, took a week to get uh, a letter from one city to another. It was extremely primitive. And what had happened was... In, during the Depression, my uh, uh, father had, had, well, my father was a civil engineer, and he had built U.S. Highway 54 from close to Chicago, diagonally across the country to El Paso, Texas. And once that project was over, he was uh, laid off after uh, the crash in uh, 1929. And uh, he, first of all, we ranched just outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico, uh, on my grandfather's ranch for a while until, and we ran a dairy farm. Uh, of course, I didn't do much there. I was only three at the time. 
uh, until the price fell on dairy products to the point where we couldn't live off the proceeds. So we had to move on. And the first job my father had after that was in a mine, the Miami copper mine in Arizona. And he had a severe accident. And since there was no health insurance and no no law about uh, throwing people out when they were injured, he got fired from there because he had to uh, recuperate from a severe accident. Uh, and in order to survive, he had a wife and child, of course, to uh, keep alive. Uh, he found a job as a sort of sharecropper. In other words, he was an assistant to the, the owner of a farm in Spring, which is southern Missouri, right on the northern border of Arkansas. And he liked the landscape and the, and the climate there. And before the war broke out, we went back east to visit my father's family in New York State and in Ohio. And on the way, we, uh, we passed through the area where he had worked on that farm for a short time before beginning going back to New Mexico and beginning a teaching job. And he found a 365-acre plot of land in northern Arkansas on Lake Norfolk, or what would be Lake Norfolk, because a dam was just being completed there. And by the time the war was over in 1945, and my father had served uh, as a captain of Army Engineers, uh, and had been wounded, and the wound wouldn't heal. He was shot in the stomach. Uh, we decided we would, uh, first of all, I should say that we put a, a down payment on those 365 acres. Uh, so that was before the war, before we even suspected the war would come. And after the war then, my dad decided to take medical retirement, and uh, we would move there to those 365 acres. And that is where this story begins. Hmm. And the time is June, 1945. And uh, I was saying that TVA, uh, which is the uh, Roosevelt uh, FDR's plan to electrify the country because they, believe it or not, the United States did not have electrical power in 1945 yet, certainly not in the Ozarks. And so people were uh, lighting their evenings with coal oil lamps, as I said. So we had to wait a couple of years before TVA came through. Uh, and uh, my dad, I, I know I'm repeating myself, well, but my okay. dad, <laughs> thank you, but my dad uh, used a Maytag washing machine motor and a, bat and a group of about uh, 12 uh, V6 batteries, so six volt batteries, uh, and uh, created an electrical light system for our home and our outbuildings. <laughs> so we were the only people in the entire area to have electricity because of my dad's ingenuity. He had done the same thing in, um, in um, uh, sorry, in New Mexico, uh, and he used a wind charger 
that he created out of a, a long pole, a metal pipe, actually, and a, a, a an airplane propeller. And so, yes, hooked up to batteries. Uh, and so we had electricity out in the middle of the desert uh, there, too. So he, he was not a civil engineer for nothing. Uh, in any case, uh, he had been, for a year, he had been the ordnance officer at Fort San Luis Obispo. And he decided that if he was going to uh, get something out of the rest of his life, which he assumed was not going to be very long with this wound that would not heal, uh, he wanted to become a, a, a farmer or possibly a rancher if farming would not be a plan and would not uh, make enough money to live on in this plot of land in Arkansas. We were in uh, New Mexico when my dad hitched the trailer that had stood in my grand, uh, grandma's driveway during the war years to the car and we loaded it with what furniture and other goods we had accumulated that were worth keeping and headed for the Ozarks. This was no temporary vacation trip. My dad and, and mother had agreed to move to the property in Arkansas and farm it, if possible, ranch it, if not. It had not been occupied since the Civil War, at least not for any long period. But Dad had said there were buildings and a serviceable well. I had not seen our new home before we bumped over the quarter mile of wagon track that led to the property from the unpaved County Road 48 that served the area. I was dismayed by what I saw. The entrance to our land was marked by a cattle guard made of rusty old iron pipes, flanked by wooden posts and the remnants of a barbed wire fence on one side, newer web and barbed wire on the other. We crossed the cattle guard and parked, then assessed our situation. The main structures were a house and a half-collapsed barn. Two sheds, one with an attached outhouse, completed the ensemble. The house and barn were built of native oak logs, the sheds of unpainted gray clapboard. When the first rains fell, all the roofs proved, proved to be watertight. I could already see that the house had a corrugated tin roof. The barn and sheds had wood shingle, probably cedar, which was a very, a very prevalent tree in, the, in those areas there. The caulking between the logs of the house had long fall, fallen out, and I imagined the wind whistling freely through the structure. The barn, a huge building, resembled a monster struggling to rise, its head, shoulders, and front legs erect, the hindquarters prone on the ground. Oddly, the half still standing retained its caulking. I turned to my dad, standing next to me. Why is the barn, half of it at least, in better shape than the house? The, um, the real estate agent told me the neighboring farmers used its loft for storing hay they illegally reaped on the fields over there. He pointed to an open, an open area on the southwest. We set out to give the place a closer look. The barn was closest. A relatively new fence of web wire topped with two strands of barbed wire surrounded it, 
and two sturdy eight-foot gates opened on our side and opposite into the fields beyond. We entered the barn through a huge sliding door into a hallway with two usable stalls on the left, two on the right, with a corn crib in between. I climbed, I was 12 at the time, by the way. I climbed, I climbed the ladder uh, in the hallway to the loft. Half of the space was packed with bales of the illegally stored hay, now old and dry, but still smelling faintly aromatic. It was probably still usable, but barely. There was plenty of space left to store new hay between the stacked bales and the open front end of the loft. And these, of course, were the smaller uh, rectangular bales that were uh, packed with, uh, with baling wire. Uh, that used to be a standard before these huge circular ones came into fashion. I climbed down, joined my parents, and described what I had seen. We walked down to the house. The original log cabin looked to be around 35 by 25 feet with a clapboard addition across the front that extended 12 feet beyond the log structure on all sides forming an overall T-shape. A covered porch had been added to the log cabin on the right side. I ran my hands up and down the pillars of the porch. They seemed to be cedar trunks stripped of their bark. The house had no floor. The addition of a porch still did. The addition and the porch still did. Two doorway openings gaped on the front and side, along with holes for windows. Weeds grew tall all around and inside the house. A well stood on the right side, surmounted by a pulley with a rope and a dented tin bucket. It was surrounded by a four-foot wall of native stone. A few yards beyond it rose a large mound covered with weeds, grass, and vines. Dad and I stripped the vegetation from the near side and discovered a wooden door underneath. With some difficulty, Dad lifted the door, and a puff of cold, dank-smelling air struck our faces. We had discovered the root cellar and tornado shelter, a short stone stair leading down into a dark cave full of cobwebs, black widow spiders, and who knew what else. We decided to leave further exploration for later, much later. Dad made a list of what we would need to get started making a home from the remains. He shortly afterwards left for Mountain Home, the nearest source of lumber and supplies. While he was gone, Mom and I inspected the sheds and cleared one of rusted machine parts, cans, and bottles. That shed still had a solid hardwood floor and usable shelves. The other shed, the one with the outhouse attached, had been a chicken coop. It had no floor, but rather a serviceable scaffold where chickens could roost. We used flails to cut the weeds inside and around the house. We could tell from the amount of grass growing among the weeds in the yard that if we kept it mown, we would soon have a lawn. By the time Dad returned, followed by a truck loaded with lumber, doors, windows, bags of concrete, fencing, and other necessities, Mom and I had the place cleaned up and ready to begin reconstruction. The next day, we began by caulking the logs 
of the house with a white concrete mixture, then laid the floor using pine, not hardwood. <clears throat> the floor in the addition had a gap between it and the log wall of the house, so we closed that and made sure the old floor was clean, insect, and mouse-proof. We worked at least two weeks before we were able to move into the house. Up to that time, we had been sleeping in an umbrella tent, cooking on a camp stove, lighting our evenings with a Coleman lamp. We continued cooking the same way for a while, even after moving into the house. We installed the doors and the new windows with their screens and were happy not to share our evenings with so many insects and the occasional mouse or snake. We used plywood to cover the inner walls and ceiling of the log cabin, but before sealing the interior, Dad wired the place for electricity. Before long, Dad had set up a six-volt electrical system using a Maytag washing machine motor as a generator and for storage, car batteries scrounged from garages in Salem and Mountain Home. TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, only electrified the Ozarks 18 months later. Telephone service never came to the region while we were there. Once the plywood walls and ceiling were in place, we caulked to hide the seams and nail holes and painted. Details were added to the house, such as, as, a, such as a roofed stoop over the front door with a concrete step. We used a large flat rock as a stepping stone port. As, as a stepping stone to the porch and the side door supplied inexpensive, um, oh, and the side door, sorry, uh, second, and secondhand stores in Mountain Home and in the closest larger town, West Plains, Missouri, supplied inexpensive but serviceable furniture. The south end of the addition that extended beyond the log structure became my bedroom with a single bed and dresser. The rest of the addition housed the kitchen. The large 35 by 25 foot open space of the main house became my parents' bedroom and living room, a screen separating the two. We bought a wood-burning space heater for the living room, new cabinets, and a butane gas stove for the kitchen. Beside the lack of electricity, there was no plumbing, so our bathroom was the ancient outhouse attached to the chicken coop. Dishes, laundry, and baths had to be done in a dishpan and a tub, a corrugated tin cub, tub. Uh, a small stand next to the front door held a pitcher and a shallow pan for hand washing, morning shaves, and other ablutions. Back to pioneer days. All this changed the second year when Dad installed a sewer system. Sick as he was, he dug the trenches for drainage with pick and shovel. He built another addition on the south side that included two bedrooms and a bath, complete with toilet, sink, and a tub shower. Such luxury. In the master bedroom, he installed a set of built-in drawers next to the walk-in closet. I envied those drawers, but made do with the dresser earlier bought in West Plains. My former bedroom beside the kitchen became a pantry. 
After eating cramped meals in the kitchen for a short while, we decided to box in half of the porch and use it as a dining room. This worked well, with a window enlarged into an open doorway directly from the kitchen. We also discovered that butane refrigerators were available and bought one in time to store perishables, and once we had acquired farm animals, milk and eggs. We later bought a, a butane freezer as well. In the beginning, work continued nonstop on the house, but we also needed to enclose our property if we intended to buy farm animals. Dad and I walked the perimeter of those 365 acres. The land had once been surrounded with a split, split, split rail fence dating back, we figured, to the Civil War days or before. Although the rails were oak, they had either rotted or been torn down over the decades. At least enough remained to mark the correct boundaries. Our property was divided roughly in half by a fair-sized creek running east and west that now emptied into Lake Norfolk. A floodplain bordered the north shore from a few yards to two acres wide, an area that had been cultivated and still was almost clear of sprouts. On the south side, the land rose steeply to the boundary, covered with a heavy secondary growth of oak trees. Dad and I set out, he shouldering roll after roll of webbed wire, I toting rolls of barbed wire, and we built a solid fence all the way around the place. I was 12 years old and well on the way to my full height, eventually six feet. Dad taught me carpentering skills, and I became his helper, his man Friday, in quotes, because I, need, I indeed learned to work like a man, to carry heavy loads, endure sun and rain, hard knocks, and to be useful at all times. I developed a muscle and endurance to fill the requirements. It took at least a month, sometimes working dawn to dark, to accomplish it all. The neighbors all raised hogs. For nearly a century, they had used 365 acres as free grazing and fattening ground for their pigs, who devoured the tons of acorns those north side oak trees would have purchased every fall. Uh, produced, I'm sorry, those oak trees produced uh, tons of acres every fall. During our work, it dawned on us that we were setting the stage for serious conflict with the neighbors. One of the best sources of nourishment for their yearly crop of hogs was now abruptly cut off. Once we were sure we could safely stock our place with cattle, Dad decided to purchase milk cows and beef calves to raise for eventual sale. Mother ordered 24 baby chicks, Rhode Island Reds, from Montgomery Ward's catalog. While I was in school, my parents drove to West Plains to attend a cattle auction. They bought two cows, a Jersey and a half Hereford, both good milkers, and five one-day-old orphan calves for a dollar apiece. We had a struggle keeping the calves alive since newborns need special nutrients to help their in insides adjust to living in the world outside the womb. We had special colostrum powder from the vet that we added to the cow's skim milk since whole milk was too rich. Two of the calves developed scours, that's diarrhea, anyway, and died. 
The other three made it through and eventually grew up big and hardy enough to be sold on the market. We added more older calves later, and Jersey, the, the uh, Jersey cow, obviously, and Old Red, the half Hereford, added babies of their own to our herd. By then, school was well underway. I had found out from the postmaster where to catch the bus that took me 20 miles to Viola, the nearest consolidated school. Wow, 20 miles. Several, yeah. Several of us school kids would gather at the bus stop around 7.30 a.m., of course, and wait, building a fire in cold weather. Um, Junior was there, uh, uh, Junior and Johnny Walker's kids. Uh, Junior was uh, the son of the uh, postmaster. Uh, and Johnny Walker was uh, this, uh, the kids, uh, Johnny Walker's kids were uh, from the farm next door. Um, and I say so right here. Um, Johnny Walker's kids who lived on the neighboring farm to the south of ours. Uh, um, and a boy, one of their, uh, one of the Walker kids, and his sister Louise, she and I eventually became friends since she was also in ninth grade. The bus usually came after a 15 to 20 minute uh, wait, and the long ride to Viola followed. During those rides, I discovered that as soon as they had satisfied their initial curiosity, most of the kids considered my accent, appearance, and the way I dressed alien, and most of, most lab, labeled me a foreigner to be avoided. Wow. For, my, for my part, I considered them aliens for the same reasons. <laughs> it quickly became obvious that my schooling had been far superior to theirs. It was California schools. And I felt personally superior, which compensated a bit for my isolation. The first day of school was a revelation. The English teacher, the superintendent's wife, Mrs. Diggs, was well enough educated, but had a cold, dry, and strict manner in and out of class. The math teacher, Bathus Smith, was also our social studies teacher. He proved to be a good mathematician, but was often at sea in any other subject. For some reason, he began the first history class by talking about the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, probably because he admired Euclid's mathematical discoveries. He told us all about Socrates, <laughs> Socrates, uh, Socrates, whom he referred to as Socrates. I, of course, knew better, had my hid my laughter and dashed into the house after school. Hey, Mom, guess what we learned today? All about Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> there was no orchestra or any other kind of music at Viola High School, and I had been playing trumpet in the, in the school orchestra, which was a pretty good one, um, but a well-run business course taught by the math teacher's adult daughter and the popular sports program. When I returned from school one late afternoon, after Dad had been gone for a day or two, I went first to the barn. Uh, meanwhile, we had decided we would join the, uh, the neighbors in raising some hogs, and we bought a sow, uh, actually a, an un, uh, unbred sow, a, a female pig, is called a gilt 
and it's spelled G-I-L-T, but the G is, is pronounced hard. Anyway, we thought that she had not been bred, and we were going to raise her. She was still uh, small enough to be uh, picked up. She probably weighed maybe 75 to 80 pounds at this time. <laughs> but my dad handed me this uh, this uh, gilt. Uh, I was seated in the back seat, so I didn't have to actually lift her. I just received her in my lap. And she became a pet of mine, and she loved me and behaved like a dog with me alone. Anybody else she was suspicious of, and my mother in particular. Yeah. And my mother was afraid of her, and and this guilt whose name I had named her Gravel Grotty, <laughs> because that was a character in Dick Tracy, a comic strip of the time. Uh, and, uh, and I thought Gertie was a, a proper name for a pig. So, <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, when, uh, and it turned out that she had been bred, and she, in due course, uh, so three months after uh, after we bought her, she had a batch of six little pigs. Uh, so when I returned from, uh, of course, we were keeping them in the barn in one of the stalls, because we we didn't need that spare stall, we had we milked in one of the stalls, had food uh, feed for uh, for the cows in another one, and now for the pigs, pig, uh, and um, so the the third stall, uh, which was a nice enclosure with hay, with uh, straw on the uh, ground and so on, uh, was for the the uh, pig with uh, gravel goatee and her new brood. So when I returned from school one late afternoon after Dad had been gone for a day or two, and my dad, by the way, had gone to San Antonio to make his uh, his deposition before the medical board, uh, the board of uh, Army medical examiners, uh, requesting a uh, retirement, medical retirement. And so he was gone for about two weeks, and my mother and I had to hold the fort and, and feed the cows and milk and, and the rest of it by ourselves. So he had been gone for a day or two. And I returned from school and went first to the barn. Gravel Gertie had grown to gigantic size, almost six feet long, and no, no doubt weighing over 200 pounds by then. Oh, God. Wow. She, she had borne six beautiful white piglets a week earlier and was happily nursing them. She indulgently let me pet each one, everyone happily grunting. For their collective safety, we kept her closed in the stall with fresh straw, water, and plenty to eat. But that evening, I heard no sound from the stall. I opened the door to vacancy. Gertie and all the sparkle plenties, that, by the way, was the name of uh, Gravel Gertie, uh, Gravel Gertie's daughter, was Sparkle Plenty, ah. <laughs> In the comic strip. Yeah, Dick Tracy. And so I had uh, had Sparkle Plenty no, one to six. <laughs> <laughs> all, so all of them were gone. We knew they had been stolen, but since Gertie always came when I called, I walked back and forth. Now I walked back toward the highway, then north and south, calling her. No response. I repeated the process the next morning and evening and the next. 
Finally, Junior's mom, the postmistress, took pity on us. I know you're looking for your pigs. If I were you, Flo May, and Florence is my name, but uh, but the Ozarkans called me Flo May, I'd look for them over a Sam Talbert's way. And Sam Talbert was her brother-in-law, and his farm was on that side of the uh, county road. So it was some distance away, maybe about a mile, probably less. The next day was Saturday. After finishing the chores, I partially filled a bucket with a few scoops of corn from the crib. Mom wanted to come too, probably thinking she could uh, she could protect me in case of trouble. Mom was only five foot four, four inches to my six feet, so I had to adjust my stride to hers. Both of us had an unerring sense of direction, and of course we knew where Sam's farm, this is Sam Talbot, uh, Sam's farm lay. We set out in a beeline, headed southeast through the cedar and scrub oak woods until we reached County Road 48, which we crossed. No one would observe our movements since the post office was out of sight from our crossing point. We continued southeast and sure enough came out at the foot of the hill where Sam's farm buildings were laid out. At the base of the hill, a corral of wooden posts and bars, including um, uh, including a red wire, uh, included a red wire lining. Inside it <coughs> were Grandma Gertie and her piglets. The farmhouse was a hundred yards up the hill, in plain sight, the barn to one side. It was ten o'clock by the time we arrived, so all chores were done, and perhaps Sam, Sam was reading the newspaper or planning a project. At any rate, no one was outside. We knew we would be seen if anybody looked in our direction, but I left Mom at the edge of the woods and walked over to the nearest gate into the corral. Gertie had already seen me and was waiting with her babies I opened the gate a crack, lowered the bucket, and let her have a mouth full of corn. Then I left the gate open and walked back to the woods, Gertie and company following me without hesitation. Wow. Once we were inside the woods, out of sight of Sam's house, Mom and I agreed that she would come behind to watch in case anyone had seen us. She knew she couldn't keep up. I moved ahead as fast as I dared, leading Gertie and her bouncing pink piglets. I gave her another taste of corn every 50 yards. I kept an eye on the babies to make sure they could follow. What happened next is Mom's story. After a while, she heard crashing noises behind her. She stepped aside from the track, hidden by a tree and a shrub. Sure enough, Sam appeared, a shotgun in his hands, running to catch up and snatch the stolen pigs back again. As he approached, Mom stepped from the woods into his path. Why, hello there, Sam. It's a fine morning to take a walk, isn't it? Sam's face became red, from running, perhaps, and from anger and embarrassment as well. Well, uh, Mrs. Byam, uh, yes, it is. Hunting for rabbits, no doubt. 
Well, um, maybe with a shotgun. <laughs> I don't think you'll find any out here. I sure haven't seen any. You'd, you'd best look somewhere else. Sam looked beyond her at the trail where Gertie, her family, and I had disappeared. After uh, dropping his eyes to meet Mom's sharp gaze, he stammered, uh, I, I reckon so, Mrs. Byam. He turned and started back the way he'd come. Mom watched for a few minutes until, satisfied he wasn't taking a detour around her to waylay us, she headed home. There were no more attempts to steal Gertie or any of our stock, but battle continued. The one constant undeclared war was over fence cutting. Every few days, one or two strange hogs would appear somewhere near the house or the barn. I would walk the fence line, find the spot where the fence was neatly cut, the wire doubled back, or sometimes missing, and hauled away. Dad and I would then retie or splice the area and wait for the next time. Exasperated, Dad casually mentioned to the postmistress as we picked up the mail, we sure get a lot of hogs wandering on our place. I guess we're going to have a good supply of hams and bacon on our hands pretty soon. <laughs> when he went on to remark on the weather, the, the war sputtered out after that, but kept reigniting at least once a year. Although Gertie loved me and tolerated my dad, she had no respect for my mother. Mom wow. was petrified of her, and Gertie knew it, so she bullied Mom whenever she could. At six feet long, Gertie was a formidable animal. She was powerful and could uproot any fence she decided to break. Dad and I grew weary of repairing fences that she would tear through the next day or two, and we allowed her far too much freedom. She never left the property of her own volition, so having her turn up in unexpected places didn't bother us that much, but my mother was bothered. One day, Dad and I were several hundred yards away from the house, below the hill, working to clear a spring that fed a small creek. The cattle had stood in the spring, kicking rocks into the source and almost blocking the flow of water. We were hard at work moving stones and debris when we heard my mother scream, Steve! That's my dad's name, of course. Yeah. This was no ordinary call. It conveyed real terror and desperation. Dad was instantly on his feet, running straight up the hill through heavy brush and timber. By the time I could follow him, he had already carried my mother to the car and was driving out. I was left not knowing what to think. Gertie was nearby, calmly eating scraps and licking blood off the ground next to a large Pyrex mix mixing bowl that had cracked precisely in half. Mother had apparently dropped it, and it obviously had landed on a stone. I could see where Gertie had rooted her way under the chicken wire fence and had apparently challenged my mother who must have been bringing leftover salad and other scraps to feed the chickens. She had instead given, in quotes, Gertie the food, who now seemed calm and satisfied. But had she attacked my mother, 
Who knew what the taste of mom's blood, I was sure it was hers, would do to her piggish psyche. Mm. My parents returned a couple of hours later. Dad had driven to Viola, 20 miles, to the country doctor there. Dr. Benson was probably in his 70s and still used the medical practices he had learned in the early 20th century. When Gertie confronted Mom, growling and showing her fangs, Mom dropped a bowl, which popped in half. One half, its edge sharper than a razor, rebounded and sliced into her leg, severing an artery. Cut. She was bleeding. Oh. She was, yeah. She was bleeding out when she screamed, Steve! Once, once the food landed on the ground, Gertie paid no further attention to Mother, but went about gobbling up the scraps and leftover salad. Dad tore a sleeve off his shirt and bound the pulsing, squirting wound, then used his belt as a tourniquet. They made it to Viola, 20 miles away, in record time. Dr. Benson lift ma lifted Mom onto the operating table and, without painkiller of any kind, proceeded to sew up the wound. Mother, stoic as ever, didn't utter a sound. She did not insist that we get rid of Gertie, valuable as a brood sow. She had bullied Mom into giving up the scraps, but had not further attacked her. Nevertheless, Dad and I made sure to keep Gertie in remote areas of the farm from that time on. And that is the end of the story. For wow. That's just unbelievable. Uh, one of the first things I just uh, want to comment on is uh, you know, they don't make men like your dad anymore <laughs> who, can, who could, uh, you know, turn a wilderness into, uh, you know, a livable place. I just can't imagine uh, doing any of those things that That's your father right. was. And this is an educated man, a civil engineer, uh, <laughs> utilizing it in, in the wild. I mean, but he is, um, he, I, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, frontiersman slash scholar and uh, what a what a man what an unbelievable all three of you uh just really applause to all three of you but uh your father for getting it started there same on uh, uh shame on sam what whatever you know for the 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 goal that he had to chase after with a shotgun to to come and your mother's handling of it was great but i mean what was he what was his plan he was going to hold he was going to say give me back my pigs yeah, well, he was certainly going to threaten my mother with, his, with the shotgun. He was. He may have uh, thought of sh shooting it into the air um, to frighten the pigs and and spook them so that they would be scattered, uh, and then uh, probably uh, uh, tell my mother. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it, his. I don't think he had a real plan because uh, what could he do? He was against. The, he was. Uh, uh, stealing, and my mother could certainly prove that. And uh, uh, it, even if he managed to get those pigs back, uh, he would have to have help to find the pigs who had been spooked and who were hiding in the woods. And uh, they might have run across uh, the county road and gotten hit. I mean, anything could have happened to the pigs. So, I mean, it was a whole uh, crazy thing that he had done in the first place. He, he had banked on the pigs disappearing and us not, and my mom and me, uh, without my father, uh, not knowing what to do next and, of course, not finding 
the pigs before he either sold them or put them somewhere where they would not be uh, discoverable on another property of his or something. So uh, once he was discovered and we had the pigs with us again, uh, I don't think he really knew what he was doing. He simply was furious and came after us with a shotgun. Uh, so, and, and then encountered my little mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, who bravely uh, stopped him and started a nice little conversation. Wow. <laughs> Just uh, kudos to all of you. Uh, the last... <laughs> The last thought, and I hate it to be a morbid one, but uh, what ultimately happened to Gertie? Did uh, did she become uh, uh, Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, did she? Uh, uh, no, no, she re- she remained a, our brood sow, and and we added. Of course, the piglets grew up, and we sold them off. She had more broods of uh, babies because we bought a boar. Yeah. Uh, to uh, to fertilize her and uh, the other females, so we we had a real <laughs> bevy of pigs uh, going there on that ranch as well as uh, as cattle, uh, because we quickly found out that although we could farm the bottom land next to the stream that ran through the place, uh, the one side had uh, really fertile. Uh, full area, but it was quite limited. Uh, we could uh, grow uh, milo maize and corn, uh, feed corn, not not eating corn, human eating corn, but uh, food for the animals uh, on it and, and harvest that, but even that was not enough to feed them year-round. So, uh, so we knew we couldn't live off the farm as a farm but we could live off it somewhat as a ranch. ranch. Interesting. And, and my dad, who had been teaching in New Mexico very successfully, he was a wonderful teacher too, uh, he uh, uh, went to work teaching in uh, the Biola Consolidated School and then became principal because not only was he a good teacher, he was a good leader of people. He had been a wonderful captain of uh, of his uh, his men during World War Two, uh, and they loved and appreciated him. They called him the old man. Yeah, wow. Well, listen, that uh, it, what what a family, what a hearty bunch the Byhams were, and uh, and to um, mentally, emotionally, and physically, um, just uh, kudos. What what a book this is going to be. What a memoir. This is uh, the, the every passage I've heard is just blows me away. This is a great one, Doc. Congratulations on, on a well-written story and a well-lived life and story. I I, I just I can't believe it. Uh, thank you, and and uh, we'll pick up and we'll pick up on the memoir somewhere along the line. Uh, and and uh, you know who knows uh, what you're going to bring as it comes. Just a great job uh, every single time, Doc. Thank you. And it, it, to everyone there, Doc, do you hear me? Did I lose you? I, I, we lost Doc. Frank McKay here signing off for Dr. Uh, Florence Byham Weinberg. And you've been listening to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you next time on the Florence Weinberg Show.